0: Ready to go? Sure. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming, everyone. Uh, as always, we're grateful to the BSA, the British Society of Aesthetics, for their continued sponsorship of this series. We're delighted today to have Nick Riddle, all the way from California, uh, University of San Diego, where he's Assistant Professor of Philosophy. Nick has written on a variety of topics in aesthetics early on in the street art, as one well of the classic papers in street art, maybe the pioneering paper of street art. Oh, uh, he sorry. writes on um, <laughs> beauty and love, a uh, connection between the two things, on um, personal ideals of aesthetics. And his topic today is Dynamics of Aesthetic Discourse, Aesthetic Judgments as Invitations. Over to you, Nick. So, thanks so much for having me. It's really great to be here. Um, I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to kind of throw a lot at you. Uh, I hope you don't mind. Um, I am, I'm thinking through a whole lot of things uh, related to aesthetics and conversation, and, um, and I have a sense of where I want to go, and I have some sort of rough ideas about how to situate things. But um, but uh, and I hope we're willing for willing to to uh, to entertain me a bit. Um, so um, what I want to uh, oh sorry I've got this backwards. I'm going to give you a little motivation here. Um, so what I'm, what I'm up to here is. Um, I want to give a theory of what, um, basically how aesthetic discourse affects conversation and how um, it does it in a way that's different from what you might think of as sort of normal factual or descriptive discourse and um, other kinds of normative discourse like uh, moral discourse. Some of the things motivating me along these lines um, are the three things up here. there's a general neglect of aesthetics in metanormal theory. Um, not entire neglect, but if you know this literature, you know that examples tend to focus on moral discourse, and um, increasingly, I guess, on um, epistemic discourse or reasons or something like that. Um, but uh, when aesthetics does come into play, it tends to be quite uh, superficial or sort of off the cuff. Small examples, not much investigation, I think, There's more of interest to be said about aesthetic discourse, so I wanna try to make some progress along those lines. The other thing is uh, I'm interested in, increasingly, in uh, what I'm calling communitarian aesthetics. So I'm interested in communitarian theories of aesthetic phenomena, like aesthetic judgment, aesthetic value, um, and so on. And I wanna contrast that, just sort of um, in broad strokes, with what you might think of as individualist aesthetics, which um, I think it's kind of the default way of thinking about aesthetic experience, where you know it's kind of a matter of being an individual and sort of encountering some aesthetic object, having some experience, and, and then you might go like tell someone about it, um, and maybe they have the same experience, you can like talk about it, but at the end of the day, and, and this way of thinking affects the way we think about aesthetic value, um, aesthetic creativity, um, artworks, uh, all, the whole range of Things and um, I want to suggest that, uh, at the very least, it's interesting to explore alternatives to this view, because um, there aren't many alternatives. And I think you have to look. Um, there's some hints in, in the third critique, but I think if you have to look back to Schiller to find someone who's really clearly uh, articulating a kind of communitarian aesthetics, and, um, and I think it's time that we sort of get inspired by that way of thinking a little more, if only to have a kind of interesting contrast um, in, in, our, in our theorizing. And then so uh, I also think that um, this is sort of part of my, part of this big project is, is to think in more big picture terms about um, about, about the aesthetic. So um, we have a lot of very, I mean, you're familiar with aesthetics, we have a lot of very interesting contributions to testimony, to disagreement, to aesthetic judgment, to all these things. But where's the big picture of studies? Where's the stuff that unifies it all? Gives an interesting unified theory of testimony that connects to disagreement and judgment and value. Um, I want one of those. Um, I'm tired of reading the third critique. <laughs> um, let's get some other ones on the table. Um, that's kind of the thought. I'm not going to give you that here, obviously. But, uh, but I, might, I might hint at a couple of things here and there. Um, because I think that... My way of thinking about aesthetic discourse um, and then the sort of upshots that this way of thinking has for individual aesthetic judgments um, has some interesting consequences for our ways of thinking about um, acquaintance, testimony, disagreement, uh, and the whole range of, of fun stuff that we like to think about. So a little motivation. Um, okay, now i got to go back to my plan. Um, here's the plan. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, updating the sort of um, classic stonaparian sense, I guess. Um, and I want to describe something that I call the imperative inference. And then um, and then I'm going to try to explain the imperative inference. Um, and I'm going to say it's not implicature uh, in any sense of that word. It's um, more likely a feature of the speech act we typically perform in a fake discourse. And then um, it turns out that uh, there's a lot of different ways of understanding uh, the imperatival force of the imperative inference, and so I'm going to go through a bunch of ways and pick out four and say uh, these are the more likely ones: demands, requests, recommendations, invitations. And uh, I'm going to argue for the invitation view, and then conclude. Um five. Oh, Here we go. I'm on four hours of sleep, so I can't drink water correctly. Okay, so that's the plan. There you go. Here we go. So I want to start with, um, I want to start by soliciting your intuitions, if you don't mind. So um, imagine uh, imagine we're hanging out. And uh, we know each other, but like, we're not, we're like, we're acquainted, right? We're not like deep friends. So we're acquainted. Uh, we don't have any reason to hate each other. Put <laughs> that way, um, and uh, we're hanging out by a bridge, and um, and kind of kind of out of nowhere, I just say, eh, that bridge is beautiful. Now suppose I say that, and you just go, so what? Something weird about that. Something weird about that. You shouldn't say that. You shouldn't say that. Well, my guy's cut off. Darn. I don't know why. Um, now, okay, just maybe hold that in mind for a second. Contrast that with this claim: we're hanging out, do not have any reason to hate each other. I don't know where I just go. That bridge? Ethically, ethically dope. I think in that case, your so what <laughs> makes a little more sense. A little more sense. It might, it might still be weird, but I, I, I just want to contrast this claim right now. Comparative value. It seems like it's better to say that set a claim than it is to say this. And I think it's just definitively bad to say something like this. <laughs> We're hanging out. We have no reason to hate each other. And out of nowhere, I just say that bridge two lanes wide. <laughs> You're like, so what? Give me more. What's that? It's just awesome. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> So there's also badness related to the street value. Um, not what I had in mind. And I actually have never looked <laughs> at the lanes here, right? Um, okay. It's probably the Golden Gate Bridge, which I know from many, many, many experiences that it is many more than two lanes wide. So. Unless those... So um, Paul Ziff noticed a similar phenomenon, um, but I want to distinguish what I'm talking about from his thing. So just really briefly, in anything viewed, he has Look at the dry dung. What for? Mm-hmm. If I had said, look at the sunset, would you have asked what for? You wouldn't have, of course. Sunsets are customary objects of aesthetic attention. But not everything is. Not soiled, linen, greasy dishes, bleary eyes, false teeth, not it. So um, what, what Ziff wants to point out is that sunsets are customary objects of aesthetic attention. I want to point out the way in which aesthetic judgments ask you to um, draw your attention to a certain spot. And not merely to look, right? Not merely to look, but to appreciate. So I think um in the in the in the first case that I gave um, you oh wait, I have a slide for that. So here um, he's looking with his laser eyes. Um, I say that bridge is beautiful and he looks but then just says nothing. There's no there's no uptake. There's merely just kind of like so merely looking, I think, is not sufficient to solve the issue. You, you still have not done the right thing in some sense, even if you just look. I think the intuition is um, uh, that aesthetic discourse carries a defeasible presumption of update. So the thought is, um, now this can, but don't, don't, don't go too far with this uh, right away, this can go um, bad in all kinds of ways. The judgment can be misformed, can be inappropriate, can be incorrect. Uptake is not generated, uh, or not, in some sense, um, called for. Um, But I think in these simple cases, we can say, um, when things are going smoothly, anyway, aesthetic discourse carries a defeasible presumption of uptake, one that can be defeated, of course. Um, And the uptake is something like appreciation It's not just looking, it's, it's actually like aesthetically appreciating. So um, I think we see some evidence along these lines when we look at the um, connection between a typical aesthetic claim and, and, a, and an imperative of some sort. So we typically can say, if I'm like, hey, that, that coat, is, I mean, my coat is stunning. I don't get to wear this in San Diego, so I'm like very proud of it when I get to wear it in cold weather. Um, that coat is stunning, right, I say um, and I'm even pointing, right? Like, look! <laughs> um, it seems like uh, typical aesthetic claims are interchangeable with imperatives with to, to look or to appreciate or to hear. Um, the bridge is beautiful. Look at the beauty of that bridge. Um, Those seem roughly interchangeable in, in, in much aesthetic discourse. Uh, unlike uh, what I call ordinary descriptive claims of actual um that code is red, See that the code is red. Doesn't seem, it doesn't seem um, felicitous or act. Uh, and then, of course, we're, we're all familiar with prescriptivism and its variations. Um, we might not want to analyze moral claims in this way, but, but I think, nonetheless, typically in moral discourse, if I say it's morally wrong to wear that coat, we're um, communicating, in some sense, you know, don't wear it, right? some kind of imperative uh, to that effect. The bridge was carelessly engineered. Don't use the bridge. Um, so right, right now you might be thinking, okay, well then, moral and aesthetic claims are, are kind of more or less the same um, in this respect. They have, they, they communicate typically these imperatives to what? Well, moral discourse is about action, so to act in a certain way. Uh, aesthetic discourse is about appreciation or valuing, so imperatives uh, to appreciate or value, value in some way. But I want to I try to convince you with a second um, example that um, aesthetic discourse has unique updating features um, so um, so imagine a situation where we 're in a conversation, suppose we 're in a linguistic community where um, where it 's common knowledge it 's like just common knowledge everyone knows everyone knows that everyone knows, knows etc that um, that the sunsets around here are beautiful that this city is south of Los Angeles, and that um, honesty is, is good. Okay, this is the complex moral, and aesthetic, and factual life of, of this community. These facts are just common common knowledge. Now, suppose you're in a suppose you're in a conversation with um, with with a local again someone who's like part of your community. You know, you, you may don't know them, but like again. You know, you, know, you don't have any reason to hate them. Things are, things are smooth between you. So, conversation one. I can't believe it's going to rain tomorrow. Yeah, by the way, did you hear that the mayor will go ahead with improvements to the bridge? I did. I'm rather glad about that. I drive over the bridge almost every day. Local. Well, lucky you. Your drive will certainly improve. You. That sunset sure is beautiful. Local. Indeed. Fine. I think. My, my intuition here is that's pretty normal conversation. It's fine. Compare that with, um, sorry, I wanted to I wanted to note a couple of things. Um, that first of all, as I mentioned, it's common knowledge that the sunsets around here are beautiful, but it's also um, a kind of manifest event, right? It, you're, you're like standing here chatting. It's like clearly part of the common ground. Not just that sunsets around here are beautiful, but that this sunset is beautiful. It's impossible that like, anyone failed to notice that there's just like a stunning sunset. And so even though the, the generic claim is common knowledge, um, so, so is the specific claim about this sunset. It's, it's part of the common ground. Yet you can, in some sense, assert that very thing that's already part of the common ground to conversational effect. Okay, so that's that's what I'm interested in. Now I don't think moral claims have the same uh, quality. So remember, we um, think honesty is uh, honesty is good, right? That's common knowledge. We're having a conversation. Can't believe it's going to rain tomorrow. Yeah, by the way, did you hear that the main suspect finally told the truth about the murder? I did. Everyone's glad that the case is closed. We sure are. You, his honesty is good. I think that's weird. Okay, I think it's weird. It's all again. It's it, it's conversationally presupposed. The generic claim, honesty is good, or the general claim. But, um, I think it's clearly established in the conversation that his honesty is good. It's the particular claim. Yet you trying to reassert something uh, moral that's already part of the common ground is 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 a little odd. Now, don't get me wrong, um, you might disagree to some extent. All I want here is a comparative claim. The moral claims worse (coughs) than the aesthetic one. The aesthetic one sounds better. That's what I'm interested in. Okay, um, and then, uh, just to maybe further my case a little bit, um, I think it's totally fine to say this. (laughs) You're totally, you know, you're not even talking about sunsets. Talk about murders in the you know, local news, and then you just kind of like, like, yeah, we talked about the murder. The sunset's beautiful, right? You can just talk about the sunset. You can just bring beauty up, um, and that's the kind of thing I'm quite interested in. And then, of course, in contrast, you cannot say this. <laughs> this would be super bizarre. Um, uh, so factual claims uh, have no have no interest here. Okay. Um, So uh, in sum, I'm going to say this, aesthetic claims can play a distinctive role in conversational dynamics. Unlike moral and ordinary descriptive claims, we can use them to dynamic effect, even though not always, when their content is on the record. And this presumably has something to do with a particular way that aesthetic discourse can communicate imperatives to appreciate, which we notice first. We can utter aesthetic sentences whose content is on the record to issue these imperatives. Um, And for whatever reason, they're interestingly different from whatever moral imperatives we can issue. Um, they don't don't update in the same way They don't don't have the same dynamic force. Um, Okay, Um, so let's define the imperative inference. I wanna say this, when we make typical aesthetic claims of the form that O is A for some, aesthetic adjective A, not O, we tend to communicate an imperative to appreciate O. Uh, I'll say a little bit more about this in a moment, but um, I really, really think it's important at this stage of theory, to focus on normal aesthetic discourse, everyday aesthetic discourse, um, the one, the things that we just talk about, kind of mm-hmm. with our friends as we're walking down the street. oh, look at that tree. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a that's a dope car. Um, hey, I like your shoes. These kinds of things, like um, that, uh, engage us aesthetically mm-hmm. in, commonly. Um, it's it's a harder question to know what's going on with like critical discourse, where there are. Complex te- technologies um, around the, um, the issuing of, of the claims and um, institutional matters uh, from which uh, these claims uh, emerge, and so on. Um, and so, I'm super interested in, in, in critical discourse. But at this stage, I, I, I want to kind of focus on what I think of as the as ground zero of aesthetic life. Um, a lot of my work has been kind of along those lines, anyway. So I'm not. Ready to to move on yet? Um, so, how should we understand the imperative inference? Um, that's basically my question for this for this talk. And uh, I'm just so, here's here's the answer. Um, the imperative inference is a feature of the type of speech act we typically perform in aesthetic discourse. And I want to say that this act includes an invitation to appreciate. It's not a demand. It's not a recommendation. It's not a request an invitation. And uh, I have some quite subtle things to say, not, not in a value sense, but like, I've made some subtle distinctions <laughs> to, to try and, you'll see. Um, uh, I have stuff to say about what an invitation is. Um, and this is because invitation is typically the best strategy in aesthetic, in the practice of aesthetic discourse, for meeting the aim of that discourse, which I want to characterize, and this is a maybe more substantive and controversial thing, um, as a uh, a community of individuals. I'll characterize that, too. But this practice does not constitutively include an aim of convergence in attitude, convergence in affect, convergence in plans, etc. And so if, you're, if you want to talk about this, um, if you're interested in it or whatever, um, these common metanormative convergence theories won't work. So people who think that like all normative discourse is a matter of like, converging on plans or converging on attitudes or whatever, um, uh, I don't think it's going to work. There's some convergence that that comes along with the with the aim of aesthetic discourse, but it's not. Um, I don't think it's of the right kind. Um, it's at best convergence in sort of the objects that we think um, will will be good for aesthetic discourse. But we'll see more about that. Um, and so I'm interested in in this thought that if you really look carefully at aesthetic discourse, um, you'll be less inclined to. Think that metanormative theory is going to be tidy. Aesthetic. There's something special to be gained from looking at aesthetic matters. Okay, so let's uh, let's go. Um, <clears throat> maybe I'll move through this a little quickly because um, I don't think it's worth on, But maybe uh, maybe you disagree. So I'll just I'll just I'll just mention it. Um, I don't think we can say that this is implicature. Um, that the imperative isn't uh, implicated by. Um, in, in conversation, um, so it's not a conversational implicature, and I don't think it's a conventional one either. But um, so uh, conversational implicature, um, uh, <clears throat> the thought is, of course, maybe, maybe it is familiar, but like um, you know, uh, there's what you say, and there's what you communicate, and often what you communicate goes beyond what you say. So you say, uh, um, you can communicate past the salt by saying, uh, "Is that the salt shaker?" At um It's common common example. Um, and so maybe the, uh, implicature or maybe the, the, uh, the arrow here, uh, appreciate O is, is something like that. Um, it's something you communicate, uh, in the conversational context, but it's not, uh, as it were, part of the meaning of, of what you say. Um, but then of course, cancelability is a common test in, uh, in, in this, uh, of speech act theory. So if P conversationally implicates Q, then there are contexts in which uttering, uh, P does not commit the speaker to Q. But I think cancelability doesn't work well in, um, when it comes to the imperative inference. So, here's an example for you. Uh, Billy says that he loves Radiohead's music. According to him, it's gorgeous, energetic, and thrilling. But whenever it's playing, he seems almost not to notice. He never shares the music with his friends and does not care about going to their concerts. The other day, Billy said, The Radiohead song that is playing is absolutely stunning. But when I turned my attention to it, he looked puzzled and asked, What are you doing? So it seems that, that that's just kind of motivating the thought that cancelability is not going to work. It seems like we have to attribute to Billy the thought that Radiohead's music is stunning and in no sense does he want you to listen to it. But wanting one to listen to it is um, part of the felicity conditions of any kind of imperative. So, um, so it seems. Some strange, here's a couple of claims maybe to further this thought. This song is gorgeous, and there's no sense in which I want you to hear it. Um, this painting is stunningly beautiful, and for strictly aesthetic reasons, I do not want you to appreciate it. <laughs> so if, if, you, if you think that, um, if you are inclined to think that this imperative inference is an implicature, you should be worried about these examples, because they seem to show that you can't cancel the impli- you can't cancel the imperative inference. It just generates weirdness. Okay, so maybe it's a convert uh, sorry maybe it's a conventional implicature. Um, so uh, maybe it's just part of the conventional meaning of O is aesthetic um, that there's this imperative to appreciate O. There's a couple of cool ways you might you might go go down this path. I've explored them, um, and I'm just not. I don't think it's very promising, but maybe you'll maybe you'll disagree. One is um, maybe we reason like this. Um, S has just said O is aesthetic, but I know what aesthetic value is. Um, a priori, it's that which we have defeasible reason to appreciate. So here's just a principle that, like James Shelley's really attracted to this principle. Um, therefore, I ought, I, I have defeasible reason to appreciate O. Okay. Um, so, you know, that... Maybe that's maybe that's how we're thinking. It's just kind of part of the meaning of what's said that that this imperative is generated. Here's a slightly different route. Um, that's supposed to add O's aesthetic to the conversational record. But aesthetic value is such that one cannot assent to O's aesthetic unless one's acquainted with O's aesthetic character. The acquaintance principle. We all know that. Therefore, um, I should appreciate O. In order to assent to an attitude record. So it's not quite. The meaning of what's said, but it's meaning of what's said plus just like the most basic features of conversational dynamics. Um, so build it into meaning, I don't know, something like that. Uh, some people do that anyway. So. Um, and so uh, there we might get the kind of conventional implicature. Um, but uh, I don't think that's going to work because there are decent aesthetic claims that. Um, uh, that we can assert um, that, uh, in some way, don't uh, don't communicate um, acquaintance or, or this or this principle. Um, so, this is just adapted from Hopkins. I judge that it's not beautiful, but my aesthetic peers disagree. One of us is at fault. They outnumber me, and we're all competent judges. We've all tried to access the facts in the same way. There's nothing blocking your access, so it's very likely that I'm at fault. Therefore, I was beautiful um, I think in this case you don't um, you don't communicate this imperative um, because there's no sense in which you want. Um, well, I won't go that. that. Let me just say about this that. Um, I'm inclined to agree that five is a legitimate judgment. Um, and if so, then the imperative can't be a conventional implicature; It can't be part of the meaning of what's of said. What's um, that it's a legitimate judgment needs to be explained. I, I'm, and I think, that, um, I think that I have a, a grip on, on why, why it's okay. But uh, again, this is something we can talk about. So, um, but perhaps more significantly against this proposal, um, to recognize a defeasible reason to appreciate is not to recognize an imperative to appreciate. So we have a defeasible reason to appreciate all kinds of things around us. Um, based, I mean, if you're really liberal about, um, you know, think, uh, things, aesthetic character, um, uh, then, uh, there's, like, stuff everywhere. You can just, like, trip out on the table or on Andrew's shoes. Or, you, know, you have a defeasible reason to appreciate all kinds of things. That's not sufficient to generate an imperative to Okay, so um, onward to my thought. Um, if it's not a conventional or conversational implicature, then uh, how do we explain it? Well, the promising line is that it's just a feature of the speech act we typically perform in aesthetic discourse. It's just a speech act that is, or includes, or is part of a hybrid speech act that, um, yeah, it has this imperative in it. Um, so um, that's what I want to talk about now. Um, but notice that there's a lot of different uh, kinds of imperatives, and so I, 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 um, I, I made this story up to communicate them. Uh, so come over, invitation. Take Highway 5 south to the 80s and exit Montezuma Road, instruction. Grab some wine on your way, request. Go on in, the, room, the dining room's down the hall, permission. Don't drink the whiskey on the third shelf, demand, command. Eat the food, it's a threat, it's a dare. Drink some Pepto-Bismol and call me later, recommendation or advice. Lie on the couch and watch a couple TV shows, a suggestion. Get well soon, well wish. Die, you horrible cook. Expression of contempt. Um, so these are all you know, of the form of an imperative, but, uh, you know, they have quite different uh, forces in, in conversation, different meaning. So, um, without belaboring the point too much, I'm just gonna say, these are the ones that are plausible. Um, I think it's possible to say that. Um, uh, people, there's literature, and I'll discuss it in a moment, where people defend the recommendation view. Kant, um, obviously, or, a Kantian view, a Kant style view, would take up the demand style. Um, request just kind of, I don't know, maybe it's interesting. Um, it, has, it shares some features with, with uh, some of the others, and then um, Invitation. And I might mention, the, the view I do want to defend, the Invitation view, yeah, is, um, is it's, it's, not, uh, it's not totally uh, original in some ways. Um, there are some philosophers who have, who have kind of gestured at the view you know, Ted Kahn's work um, and Alexander Niemann's mm-hmm. work. And um, there's even um, Arada, uh, has a rod um, has a, um, a paper on Kant and Cavell where he he construes Kant as having an, a kind of invitation view. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty striking, uh, but when I asked him about it, he, he seemed to want to defend the demand view. So mm-hmm. I, don't know. I don't know what he's thinking, but um, anyway. Uh, And, you know, the demand that has is interpreted in 50 different ways, so um, maybe this helps. So, um, to adjudicate, these are the views I want to look at, but to adjudicate between them, um, I want to say a little bit more about what I think the norms of aesthetic discourse are. So, it's going to help to look at these norms briefly to to, uh, ask ourselves, you know, which uh, way of characterizing the imperative best captures the norms of aesthetic discourse. And uh, I'm going to argue that it's, that it's the invitation way. But um, here's what I want to say about, about a typical aesthetic claim. Remember, this is an kind of everyday aesthetic discourse. Uh, nothing, nothing too fancy, although it could be fancy um, if you're really into the aesthetic. Um, but I think that a typical aesthetic claim expresses individuality, can be correct or incorrect, but also appropriate or inappropriate. When it's appropriate, it opens the addressee to subrogatory critique and creates a non-obligatory pro tanto reason to respond. That's my way of explaining the feasible presumption of uptake. And grounds communities of appreciative individuals. So um, let me say just briefly a little bit about, about this. Uh, here are some things we might say in everyday aesthetic discourse. The play was wonderful. That song is beautiful. Those shoes are fantastic. I love this couch, it's perfect for my living room. So um, in all these cases we express our sensibility and our sensibility uh, captures our individuality, our taste in food and music and clothes and in, um, interior design and in, I don't know what car you buy, um, all kinds of things, how you, how you do your hair, what glasses you choose to purchase and so on. Um, these are part of our. These, these these choices express our individuality, express our sensibility, and aesthetic judgments are a maybe canonical way of uh, of communicating what our individualities are. Um, think about where we would be in um, in understanding each other as individuals if we didn't have recourse to aesthetic discourse. It might be much might be much harder. So. Um, but they can also be correct or um, incorrect, also appropriate or inappropriate. So um, you might say something like, "Not to diss children, but the play by the children was excellent." Um, it's probably incorrect. Um, uh, probably wasn't excellent, but you know, there it is. But, so we say stuff like that. Um, again, not not to diss children, but children. So good a good place usually. Uh, that song is beautiful, but I haven't heard it. Common example in the acquaintance debate um, and, and uh, related issues and testimony. Uh, that seems, uh, even if it's correct in some sense, it seems inappropriate if you haven't if you haven't heard the song. Um, another example that I like to think about. Um, I have a really wonderful neighbor, uh, Mel, who's a retired and, uh, maybe or something like that. Um, can't he doesn't talk about it. He just. He just gardens and hangs out. Um, he just wears the same thing every day, um, you know. He's in his late 70s, I think he's just like, fuck it. I mean, I wear a polo, white polo shirt, just like, usually I like some khaki shorts and like the same sneakers. Um, he does not care at all about shoes. Like, he, he would never want to talk about shoes. Um, and so if I'm chatting with my neighbor and I'm going out to work or whatever, and I see see email and someone walks by, um, even if it was correct, it would be inappropriate, I think, for me to be like, those shoes are fantastic. Right? Um, in the same way that the bridge is beautiful. There's something, when it comes to more specific uh, objects of appreciation, more sensibility, sort of dependent things, um, I think we can we can go wrong in making a certain aesthetic of claims. Um, even if those shoes really are in some sense, fantastic. So... Um, Appropriateness. Uh, I love this couch. It's perfect for my living room. Set of a Louis Kautors in a museum or something like that. Um, yeah, I think did I get the Kautors right? <laughs> I um, yeah. So that would be that. Would, that sounds like a joke, right? Um, right. So uh, <clears throat> when a, when appropriate, uh, I think our aesthetic claims open the addressee to to what I call derogatory critique. So when our guy here oh, cut off again um, just says "so what," it seems like uh, what he's done is permissible, but but that um, it's 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 criticizable in some sense. But it's it's totally within his rights to be like, you know, "f off." I don't want to talk about I don't want to talk about the bridge. <laughs> it's it's within his rights to do that. Um, he's not failed some duty to respond. It's just, eh, you know. In colloquial terms, in California, we might say, it kind of sucks. Um, but um, you might just think, you've been slighted, or something like that. Uh, I, had, uh, I had an experience recently, um, <laughs> I was running down, uh, just running through the city, um, trying to lose weight, um, and uh, I don't like to run, so I look, I look like I'm suffering when I run. Uh, I am, so it's, it's, it's accurate. <laughs> And um, and I was running uh, past these, this group of friends, maybe three people, and um, I think they saw my state and you know just really generously like, put up their hand for an high five. And I saw it, and I, and I, and I, like, I was like, oh, yeah, we connected, and I just kept going. Um, it was like a delightful, you know, I, they proposed this thing, I saw it, we connected, and, like, it helped me, it helped, it was like, it was beautiful. Um, but imagine if uh, I was running and I saw the hand go up and I just look at it and I just kind of like keep going. I think it's totally within my rights to do that. I haven't failed them or something. I haven't like failed to respect them as people or something like that. But I think nonetheless, they would justly criticize me in, in a certain sense. It's, it's what I want to call a sub-derogatory failure. Kind of slight, or kind of um, someone observing it would just be like, that dick didn't, that, that guy didn't high five. He just totally quit a high five the, the person. Um, he didn't do. It. It's just like it's a little, it's a little bad, but it's not, it's not morally bad in a sense. Okay. So um, <clears throat> this is a little hairy, maybe, but it's the thing I want to say. Um, a typical aesthetic claim, when appropriate, creates a non-obligatory pro-tanto reason to respond. And that's why, when you don't, you're open to sub critique. So it's kind of explaining that thing. It creates this reason, um, in, in a similar way, I think, to how requests create reasons. So, um, imagine we're at home, and someone knocks on your door, and... Uh, they're like, you don't know them, perfect stranger. And they're like, can I use your bathroom? I think, um, completely okay to be like, piss off. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, and not, and not on my bushes. Um, uh, but, um, I think requests create, uh, a kind of pro non-obligatory pro reason to take them up when, perhaps only when, at your discretion, you value the person who's issuing the request to you. So imagine it turns out, um, you know, this person is, is saying this to like, a perfect stranger, get out of here. Um, but then you, then you see, oh wait, this is my neighbor whose bathroom's being remodeled. Then, I think, you just, as it were, that, that mode, just right then, that attitude of value, just created a non-obligatory, quotient reason for you to, for you to um, um, take up those request. Now, you don't have to. There's not, it's, again, it's non-obligatory. But it, you have a reason now to do it that you didn't have before. Just because, at your discretion, you say, ah, you know what? I'm going to decide, as it were, to say this uh, this person I like you know I like this person I value this person in some way so I don't, I don't <laughs> to you, so I think aesthetic judgments are, are like this where at your discretion when you value the individuality of the person who's um, issuing the aesthetic judgment um, you have a sense of their style or you like the way that they issue the judgment or um, really any number of reasons. Um, might, uh, might cause you to, uh, to value the individuality of the judger or of the, of the, of the person making the claim uh, in such a way that this non-obligatory, pro tanto, reason to respond is creative. Um, and, of course, you might guess that I'm going to say that um, being good at a judgment is a matter of being sensitive. To the discretionary valuing of the other people. That's why when I'm talking to Mel, my neighbor, I can't just be like, "Those shoes are dope," right? He wouldn't care, and I know that he wouldn't care. So, there's something inappropriate about about that. Okay. So, um, and they uh, and they typically ground communities of individuals. So, um, to, to give you a sense of what I of what I mean by this, I think when aesthetic discourse goes well, like we feel good. Like it, it's just like it's a nice. It's a nice state of, state of affairs when aesthetic discourse goes well. Um, here's a couple of examples. Nacho and Sal decided to try the new restaurant downtown. The cuisine. The cuisine was unfamiliar to both of them, so they took a stab at ordering. The food came and Nacho took a bite. Wow, this is intense and delicious. Uh, Nacho paused. Here, try this. Sal studied the offering and ate it. Wow, yeah, not so sure about delicious. Um, here, Nacho and Sal are... Are as it were having fun, sort of thinking about the aesthetic character of, of this dish. Um, and you can imagine them going on and sort of discussing it. Similar things happen with cocktails, with wine, uh, with clothes we're trying on, and so on. So, thrift store. Austin and Sav are rummaging through clothes together at a local thrift store. Those, uh, through the aisle, Sav hears Austin say, This coat is stunning. And Sav responds, Oh, let me see, and peers over the aisle to get a glimpse. It is, try it on. And so this kind of aesthetic discourse around the code, around the dish, um and it goes, well, we can, we, we can connect, even if we don't make the same aesthetic judgment about the thing. Then, you know, it does not just happen between friends, perfect strangers, Lizzie and Rusty on a bus ride home. From work, when the bus turns a corner around a large building, bus veers west, and powerful orange light from a setting sign pours in and it casts a, casts a glow across the bus interior. Breaking the silence, Lizzie says, Yeah, obvious, that is incredible. Rusty, a row back, responds, sure it is. Again, I think we have, what we have here are, um, uh, through a, through a study discourse, we, we bond with one another. Um, in, 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 in small and large ways, I mean, I think these are fairly small in everyday ways, which is what I want to focus on, but I think it's important to note in... You know, many more, it's, it's important to know this connection to community. Um, philosophers tend to overlook it, even though it's, it's in Kant. It's in the third critique. It's, it's, and it's something I talk about at Keralta Um But uh, when you look at contemporary aesthetics, people often don't make this connection. Um, it's, it's not totally um, ignored. Andy Egan has a great paper on aesthetic disagreement. That, that makes a big deal of it. But when you compare it to sociology, anthropology, um, theories of um, aesthetics and evolution and, and many other things, the emphasis on community is just, like, shot through these works. Um, and so, uh, I think it's important for, for us to, to, to focus on that a bit. Um, and I think it's a typical feature, it's not just something that happens sometimes, it's a typical, it's a typical or even paradigmatic outcome of aesthetic, of aesthetic discourse. Okay, so here's the big picture. When we deploy aesthetic judgments, we express our individuality in attempts, conscious or not, in part to create reasons for others to engage with our judgment. These attempts can fail. When successful, the reasons they create can be ignored, in which case the addressee may be open to criticism. When the judgment is issued well and taken up properly, communities of appreciative individuals are realized and the end or the aim of the practice is met. So I do want to say that this state of appreciation, sort of object-focused, but um, also... Uh, so each one is appreciating the object, but through that appreciation, in some sense, appreciating one another. Um, that is uh, an aim, or, or perhaps the end of aesthetic discourse. Okay, so um, those are the norms of aesthetic discourse. And remember, we wanted to look at those because we wanted to find a way to adjudicate between these different options when it comes to characterizing the imperative. Um, and thereby explaining mm-hmm. the imperative inference. So, um, I wonder how I'm doing on time. I guess I don't have that much time. Okay. About um, 15 minutes, still a good time. Okay. Maybe I'll just go for, go for it then. Um, thanks for sticking with me. So, um, so here's Kantianism, right? Um, I don't want to say this is to you, because uh, I, I get in trouble for that. Um, the Kant people are should get me in trouble. Um, But it's recognizably Kantian, um, because Kant says uh, frequently, many things may be charming and agreeable to him, no one cares about that, but if he claims something to be beautiful, then he requires the same liking from others. He then judges not just for himself, but for everyone, and speaks of beauty as if it were a property of things. That is why he says that the thing is beautiful and does not count on other people to agree with his judgment of liking, on the ground that he has repeatedly found them agreeing with him, rather, he demands that they agree, agree. He reproaches them, if they judge differently, and denies that they have taste, which is, sorry, which he nevertheless demands of them as something they ought to have. And then he says, a little bit later, we must begin by fully convincing ourselves, and he says this right at the beginning, of the critique: fully convincing ourselves that in making a judgment of taste about the beautiful, we require everyone to like the object, and that this claim to universal validity, um, I, I highlighted this, Belongs so essentially to a judgment by which we declare uh, something to be beautiful that it would not occur to anyone to use this term without thinking of Usher. So we really we, you know, you're familiar with this stuff. Um, and the by which we declare is interesting because you know to the extent that can, a person wants to say oh but he's not talking about speech and, yeah he is he says it right here um, but maybe you can go with that. Um, no, it's just a form of judgment that like you Kant's know, not even talking about like, how they are issued in practice. And, um, Trying to mimic my friend Clinton here, yeah. uh, but uh, but you know whatever. Um, let's just call it Kantianism and, uh, and, and leave, leave whether it's Kant to, to another day, um, and say that a Kantian thinks that um, mm-hmm. the imperative inference goes like this: um, O is aesthetic. I hereby demand that you appreciate O. Um, Kant talks about requiring people to agree, but of course you can't agree unless you appreciate the thing. So. Uh, there's an implied demand to appreciate, so that's why it's kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, we can talk about this. But I think that Kantianism uh, nicely explains all the all the individual elements of the norms of aesthetic discourse. So when you take each one individually, you get a pretty straightforward explanation. So why does it express individuality? Well, our demands to appreciate express our sense of what's really worth appreciating. Um, and that's, that, that's, that expresses your individuality. If you, if you really think that Ferraris are, are the thing, um, you're going to be like, Ferraris are beautiful, you know, and uh, that's a demand you're making, with the, according to the Um but it's, a, it's expressing your individuality. You're someone who likes these, these sports cars or whatever. It uh, can be correct or incorrect, appropriate or inappropriate. Um, obviously, demands can be made inappropriately, um, so I won't dwell on that. Uh, when appropriate, opens the addressee to subrogatory critique. Maybe this is a little more controversial, but um, I think it's bad but permissible to ignore some appropriate demands. So um, maybe your maybe your friend like appropriately demands that you um, get her a beer, um, but you're just like get it yourself. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know I, that seems like. Um, You've 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 ignored it. Uh, I think it's permissible to ignore it, but nonetheless, if you just say that, like that's that's like, that's rude. Like you know, you're you're open to some derogatory critique. I think, um, and then uh, I think you know you have a reason to respond to my comments about Ferraris. If at your discretion, you value my my sensibility, um, I think that's okay. And then um, it comes community. If our appropriate demands are met, then our aesthetic attitudes will converge. So um, we can get a kind of community of like-appreciating um, of people, of sensibilities. Okay, so Kantianism is fine there, but what I think it doesn't do is, um, although it explains each one individually, it doesn't nicely explain the connections between them that you might expect. So um, I don't think the best way to... I think, I think typically in aesthetic discourse... The way, it's the way we express our individuality that is, the, is is one of the main sources of community it's like the way you the way you talk about the beauty of that thing um, it's like yeah you're like I like your side I mean, that's kind of a common experience in aesthetic life and aesthetic discourse um, yet the Kantian thinks that um, uh, these things kind of come apart in a weird way uh, it's not the best way to express your individuality to go around making demands that other people agree with you because it's presupposed that um, people kind of have their own individuality in aesthetic life. We know, I mean, aesthetic disagreement is, 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 is the name of the game. And so we just know that other people don't agree with uh, with us, typically. Um, and so it's it's weird to go around saying, hey, I hereby demand that you agree. Because that's a lot like saying, I hereby demand that you share my individuality. Which sounds like a kind of preference dictation of... Uh, um, I think Richard Moran is, is onto this in his, in his paper on Kant, Bruce and the Appeal of Beauty, um, where he characterizes the Kantian judge as kind of overbearing person um, who thinks that you know, your preferences in the things should be, should be the same as mine. Um, whether or not that particular way of thinking about it is, is right, I think there's something to it, which is, um, which is again, just a kind of a comparative claim, uh, which is that even if... Even if this worry can be um, can be can be fixed, I think we can say at least that uh, that Kant Kant's way of, the Kantian way of thinking um, might not be as good as some other option. So at the very least, this this might be a, a worse option, and I think that's the case. Um, so anyway, let's move on to requests briefly. Um, I don't think this is plausible. Um, So you might think, oh, always aesthetic, uh, the imperative inference is is to a request to appreciate it. But um, requests absorb please. So I think Sorrow pointed this out in the 70s. Um, Maybe someone did before him, but pass the salt. If that's a request, you should be able to say, please pass the salt or pass the salt, please. Sure. Um, But go to jail is not a request, that's a demand. And so it's weird to say, go to jail, please. (laughs) <laughs> no, you just, there's no please. You just go. Um, and I think that uh, I think that the imperative implied by aesthetic uh, claims is is not such that it, it nicely absorbs please. So that's beautiful. Look at the beauty of that. I don't think that's cap- I don't think the imperative is captured by saying look at the beauty of that please. Um, to me, that just doesn't doesn't work. And this is not to say that that doesn't work sometimes. I just think generally. It's not, it seems like please is actually turning that into a request. Um, that it wasn't a request before, and so it was something else. So I ditch the request view. But there's a common diagnosis of the problem with demands and requests, which is that aesthetic judgments don't really express what the speaker wants the addressee to do. I think they also express a thought to the effect that it would be good for the addressee to do it. So it's not just appreciate the object because I want you to it's appreciated because it would be good, in some sense, to do it. <clears throat> so Kantianism tries to capture that that sense that it would be good to do it in the form of an authoritative desire, right, a demand. Like, I intend that you uh, do this thing um, and that you do it out of recognition of my authority, something like that. Um... The request theory acknowledges that that's too strong, but its retreat is too extreme. Um, so it's not, it's not just a mere expression of wanting, as it were, for someone to do something. The two other options, recommendations and invitations, both strike the balance. They say, um, they express a desire, she's okay, they express a desire for the addressee to thigh and the thought that it would be good for the addressee to do so. Um, if I recommend that you go to the movie, um, I typically um, express a desire for you to go, in some sense, and the thought that it would be good for you to go. Um, same with invitations. If I invite you to my house, I express a desire for you to come, and the thought that it would be good if you came. So maybe these are more promising. Uh, there are two philosophers who have written a paper about the rep- recommendation thought. Um, they're a little unclear in their formulations, but um, I think it's an interesting paper nonetheless. Um, they, they write, um, their paper's called the Recommending Beauty the, Semantic and, the Semantics and Pragmatics of Aesthetic Claims, or something like that. And <clears throat> it's an inquiry from 2016. On our account, the second speech act, well, they, they think there's a hybrid speech act. Um, Aesthetic claims are hybrid speech acts, they're reports and recommendations. So on our account, the second speech act, typically involved in attributions of beauty, is a recommendation. For instance, when uttering that nocturne in blue and green is beautiful, one does not only report that the painting is beautiful according to her aesthetic standard, but implicitly also recommends to her audience that they evaluate Whistler's painting as beautiful. The content of the recommendation is that when evaluating the painting, one should exercise a sensibility that would lead to its appraisal as beautiful, as the judger is. What is recommended is that the audience is disposed to engage with the object in the same way as the speaker does, so that they get to share her aesthetic appreciation of it. And you can see that they're trying to meet some of the norms of aesthetic discourse that I uh, laid out, um, uh, with the sharing. And the, they have a kind of view in mind. They also say this, when the speaker offers a recommendation, she's not describing things as being a certain way, but rather inviting the audience to do something, to adopt a certain attitude. So when you look at work in philosophy that um, brings up invitation um, or or sort of the range of imperatives, you find this very frequently that they just they slide between um, between say recommendations or invitations, um, advice and so on. So I think one of the important things we can do uh, moving forward is just articulate these different options a little more clearly. Um, so I want to do a little bit of that work here. Um, so here's one notion of, of recommendation. Um, S recommends that A phi only if. S regards flying as in A's objective interest. So think of the doctor's recommendation. You know, you might not want to, like, stay at home for a week, but the doctor's like, I hereby recommend that you stay home for a week. Or um, well, it's just in your objective interest, uh, even if it doesn't, even if it conflicts with your subjective desires, interests. Um, but I want to distinguish this from a, what I'm calling an advisory invitation. So S advised invites A to phi, only if S regards phiing as something S would like to do, given S's interests. So a typical or a colloquial example here, um, I might say, sit down. You'll be glad you did. But I'm saying, I hear my invite you to sit down, and I'm communicating my thought that, it's in your interest to do it. You'll like it. Or mm. um, well, that's somehow responsive to my sense of, that individual's uh, likings, desires, and so on. But I want to contrast that with my favorite little concept in this, in this uh, series of ideas, pure indication. So S purely invites A to phi, only if S regards A's phiing as something A would like to do, or as something S would like A to do. So I like this disjunctive character a lot. Um, I'm going to get a lot of mileage out of it um, in the future, I think. So, um, a pure invitation would be something like, feel free to sit down. Where you don't, where you actually communicate the thought that it would be good if you sat down. You're not like, feel free to sit down. I don't give a shit what you do. (laughs) Because we say that too. Um, But that's not what I have in mind. Um, I have in mind the the pure invitation. It's like, come on over. Come on over. And I think typically when we say this, what we're communicating is that um, it's something you would like to do, or it's something I would like you to do. Of course, it, it's ideally both. Right? It's, it's, hey, come on over because we would like that. We would like that. And I think I want to say that aesthetic claims typically have that kind of, kind of force. Um, it's something we would like to do appreciate this thing together. So I think that um, uh, gonzalez de Prado and Milic, or Milich, I don't that, have the advisory invitation here. Um, and I, I'm saying this because uh, they go, they, they really do go back and forth between recommendation and advisory invitation, but they often want to characterize their, their claim in terms of inviting. And so, anyway, I, I uh, we can attribute io one to them, but I think the more interesting view is, is the advisor invitation. The objective recommendation has some of the same problems that I think Kantianism has. Um, and we might be able to see why pretty easily. But um, anyway, here's my account um, of peer invitation. And I don't think anyone's given this, so I'd be curious to hear what you think about this. Mm. <coughs> Rebecca Kukla has some cool stuff on invitation. Mm-hmm emphasizes standing to inviting also sizes um, the interesting thought that an appropriate invitation merits gratitude, which is something I want to make, make use of. But um, in terms of characterizing the phenomenology of good aesthetic discourse, there is a sense of gratitude um, often. Uh. But here's a here's a here's an account of the felicity conditions. Um, so S is inviting A to phi is felicitous only if S believes that A is able to phi. That makes sense, right? Can't invite you to um, free solo El Capitan. Um, S has standing to invite data 5. Right, so um, I can't invite you to Andrew's house um, unless he's given me standing there, unless he said, oh yeah, feel free to invite anyone." Um, S believes that either S would like to so, S would like you to fly, or A would like to fly. Um, I think an invitation is infelicitous if I think I wouldn't like that person to do the thing, and also they wouldn't like to do the thing. In that case, sorry, this is an account of pure invitation. Um, you might think formal invitations are like this. <laughs> right? the maybe that's the account of formal invitation. Right? The felicitous one, it doesn't matter if you believe that either of you would like it. It's a formal invitation. Talk about that. Um, but typically, if I invite you to my house, I think, you'd like to come over. Or, if not, then I, I think, um, you know, I would like you to come over. Um, so uh, so there you go. That's my account of peer invitation. So, um, um, by the way, you might be wondering about the ice cream. It's supposed to be inviting, um, but it's like we're in London, so maybe it's poorly chosen. I, I wrote this in San Diego, um, so, how do we adjudicate between these two views? Well, I want to go back to the dynamics of aesthetic discourse. So, um, uh, in grad school, Beatrice Longness told you this story. She was in Paris with her American boyfriend, and um, and uh, they needed ice cream on a hot day, and, and uh, they went to the vendor, and she ordered something along the and, and got it, and then and then he ordered something. And the vendor said, non, c'est pas possible. <laughs> <laughs> so what he ordered was refused by the vendor. And I love this because it's like, oh, yes, yeah, like I wish more, you know, uh, more uh, services like that where it's like attentive to, uh, to the aesthetics of your choice. I'll uh, just do whatever you want. You know. um, uh, and so I, I like to use this example, but let's think of it in a less French register. Um, and just think, you know, you're like whatever, very standard like neighborhood pop, uh, neighborhood um, ice cream shop. Um, maybe you even know maybe you even know the people there because you've been there before. Um, and uh, you say, ha- uh, so say hi. What can I get for you today? Oh, nice to see you. Or, I'd like a scoop of peanut butter with a scoop of lemon. And the vendor goes, yikes, that's a bad combination. And they say it, but kind of like you know, friendly smiling. It's not like nope, say policy. It's like. It's like, uh, you, might, you might think twice about that. It's a bad combination. How should we respond? Um, how should we respond? I think it's not obvious, but here's, here's a bad response. Uh, well, it's perfectly possible, just put one scoop on top of the other. Right? It's a bad response because um, it fails to engage with the aesthetic judgment. Right? Um, the vendor's saying, that's bad, like, that's aesthetically bad to say that it's physically possible is just beside the point. So, um, here are two ways of responding that I think, uh, I hope you agree, that are intuitively fine. right? Intuitively fine. And there's a way of accepting and, the, and a way of denying. Yikes, that's a bad combination. You say, yeah, fair enough. Let's go with lemon and pear. Maybe slightly better. Maybe not great, still. Um, although, if you've ever had fresh-sized pears with uh, lemon juice, a little lemon zest, very good, olive oil. Um, but, um, but it's better, and the vendor says, you know, that's satisfied. sounds good. What about uh, the denial? Yeah, no, that's a bad, oh, I used to have yeah, no, but I changed it, back, so I forgot to change that one. Um, yeah, no, that's a bad combination. Uh, you say, no, it's really good, it's actually really good. And the vendor says, "If you say so, but try it here so I can see your reaction." Um, okay, I think these are like good. This is like aesthetic discourse is going well here, right? They're taking up these that of claim in some sense, but denying it or accepting it and uh, making choices on those on those grounds. Now, the invitation view and the recommendation view will characterize what's going on here in very different ways. So, when the vendor says that it's a bad combination. The invitation view is going to say, I hereby invite you to appreciate that combination's disvalue, because I would like you to, or you would like to, or of course both. Um, with acceptance, you take up that invitation. All right. So in the first one, you say, fair enough. I hereby accept your invitation, um, and hereby appreciate the disvalue of that combination. Um, and you offer a different uh, proposal. In denial, you decline the invitation, but politely. You do it well, right? You don't want to take up some of the invitation to appreciate, it. you can't just get, be a dick about it. Um, and here, you're, you're quite good. So you say, I invite you to appreciate combinations of this value, blah, blah, blah. You say, but it's actually really good. Um, you, you appreciate the invitation and insist it's good. Um, and in fact, um, on the invitation view, and saying that it's actually really good, you're um, issuing a new invitation and you're asking the vendor to appreciate. So when the vendor says, okay, let's stay here, I want to see your face, they're taking up that new invitation. Right. So the invitation view, I want to say, does really well here. We said we had two intuitive responses and it explains them nicely the recommendation view does fine on one, I think, but not the other. So, um, I recommend that you appreciate the disvalue of that combination because doing so is in your interest. And remember, we have subjective interest in mind. We don't have objective interest. It's an advisory invitation. You say, fair enough, let's go with lemon and pear. In denial, I recommend that doing so, blah, blah, blah. But it's actually really good. Okay. Um, Oh, sorry. I wanted to comment on this. Um, I think the first one is really weird. I think the first one is really weird. You just said what you wanted. I want a scoop of lemon. And they say, actually, it's in your interest, it's in your subjective interest to not want that. And then you just say, oh yeah, okay. That's bizarre. You just said what you wanted. And then they said, you don't want that. Um, It's almost like a psychological... Uh, games you know it's like, no you don't want that you want something else right <laughs> It seems weird to just uh, acquiesce to this uh, claim about what your interests really are and your subjective interests. And so I think it doesn't capture um, your, your acquiescence your're your, your taking up of this recommendation. Um, but the invitation to you is just a natural um, a natural way to do it. Um, good Um, and also note on the invitation view one thing I really like about it with respect to this issue is that taking up invitations is exactly the kind of thing we do to expand our aesthetic interests You you can still want lemon and pear and think that it's in your interest to have that sorry, lemon and peanut butter and think that it's in your interest to have lemon and peanut butter um, while nonetheless being like, oh, you're inviting me to try something else, like, I'll try it. I haven't changed what I think is in my interest. I still, I still kind of want the, but you've invited me in, so I'm going to take it up. But on the recommendation view, um, you have to agree with the recommender's take on your self-interest in order to take up that recommendation and try something different. And I think that's strange. I don't think that's the right way to characterize the dynamics here. Okay, um, one more, uh, one more, I've, I've got two more minutes, so thanks for being patient. Um, uh, another way to think about these views is to think about how they would characterize the, um, sort of downstream effects of someone who almost, like, rudely, uh, rejects your invitation or recommendation. So, um, you say hi. Oh, yikes! That's a bad combination. And you say, "Well, that's what I want." Goodbye. Right? Well, <laughs> maybe, the, maybe the American did this in, in, in Paris. I don't right? see What? That's what I want. Goodbye. Um, how should the vendor feel? That's the question. How should the vendor feel about this? Um, I think if if they just issued a recommendation, then they should just be like, "All the work's for you," right? I, like you refusing is no uh, mark against my recommendation it doesn't affect the confidence I have in issuing the recommendation um, I just think you're like being closed minded you're failing to acknowledge me as a source of evidence about what's, what's in your interest um, so I think if in response to this blunt refusal the vendor should just be like that's good advice all the worse for you but I think with invitation, the vendor should uh, be a little hurt. Um, so if they really invited you to appreciate something else, um, and you're just like, no, won't right. well, do it, I think the vendor should be like, no. I mean, again, there's this kind of sense of sub or critique. Yeah. See, and you're right, but like, all right, you're not getting to this, like, whatever, this offer. I think there's a, a slightly more critical attitude that... That is merited, and so it's my my intuition that um, that that the vendor should feel this kind of you know jerky like sense in response to the person, um, and uh, and so I think looking at looking at these kinds of downstream effects can can help too. Okay, so concluding, um, or concluding this section briefly, once um, recommendations typically reveal a reason. Um, for you to do something, to take up the recommendation. So long as you have no reason um, to distrust the recommender. Um, our normal epistemic relations are such that, like, take up recommendations. They constitute these, these reasons, these evidence for us. Declining to trust the recommender is a failure to recognize a person and their status as a trustworthy source. Their, their status in this epistemic web as um, a reliable source. That's very different from a failure to take up an invitation to join activity. And um, I think that that's, I think that that's the kind of, um, that's the kind of dynamic character of of aesthetic discourse, um, where we regard the judge not as a source of evidence, but but as, I don't know something like constituting a promise of of joint activity or of connection, or mm-hmm. um, and so if that's right, the recommendation view doesn't accurately center the individual focus, discretionary valuing that features in aesthetic life. Um, again, I think aesthetic discourse engages us first and foremost as individuals with our own sensibilities and styles, not as sources of evidence. Um, and so, if we look back at the first example. We have our friends here again, that bridge is beautiful, I hereby invite you to appreciate the value of the bridge. Um, It explains why the so what is so weird, because you've just invited them to appreciate, and they're just like, I don't care. Um, And so, um, something more like this is is maybe a a more um, fluid and, and, and excellent form of aesthetic discourse, Hereby, invite you to appreciate the bridge's beauty. Um, Oh, it's cut off. It says, I love it, though I think it's stately. I see that, though I find it more elegant. Um, Here, the invitation to appreciate is being taken up. They don't have the same judgment, but um, nonetheless, it's going well. This kind of thing is what we do. Talking about films, talking about artworks, talking about clothes. Um... And so, here's my answer. We should understand the imperative inference as a pure invitation to appreciate. Um, And then I'll just end by noting one cool feature of this. Um, For S's... This is the felicity conditions again. For S's invitation to be felicitous, the speaker has to have a sense of what A would like to do. So S has to have a sense of whether A would like to phi or whether A is willing to do what... S wants A to do. That's another feature of it. I have to have a sense that you're willing to do what I would like you to do. Look at the shoes, for example. And so there are three grounds on which A might take up the invitation. But each of those grounds supplies reason not only to appreciate the object, but to appreciate an individual engaged in the conversation. So suppose that. Uh, a takes up the invitation because A would like to find, to appreciate the item. In that case, the speaker was right about A's discretionary valuing. A, a, the speaker got it right. So A's taking up the invitation on these grounds gives A a reason to appreciate S's sensitivity to A's individuality. I think, you know, you got me really right when you said that bridge was beautiful, um, there's a kind of sense of appreciation. Or I guess Kukla would say it's, a, it's gratitude for offering an, a good invitation. S would like A to do it. Um, in that case, A is willing to do what S would like A to do. So, um, uh, here's a good example. Um, I just thought of this for some because um, you when I, I was the first year in graduate school, maybe a second year, I would hang out at Andrew's house in Princeton Fairmount, And um, he played me Shona Mooleran for the first time. And I, I'm this like scrappy kid from California. I'm not exposed to stuff like this at all. And um, I, cry, like, I cried, it was so beautiful. I, I was blown away. Um, and um, I think Andrew maybe had some inkling that I'm into it. Um, but I didn't take it up because um, I thought I would like to. I took it up because I thought, primarily, Andrew would like me to. And I was, I was down to do that. I was willing. Um, and it, it actually sparked my love of Schubert, which is still very strong to this day, and to which I'm very grateful. Um, and so sometimes we take up because uh, we're willing in that, in that sense. Um, but that gives the speaker a reason to appreciate, uh, A's willingness to engage. It's also typically an expression of A's pro-attitude towards S's individuality. And then, of course, the, the, best outcome is both, right? That, um, that we're both sort of appreciating the object, but also attentive to these appreciative reasons that are focused on each other. Uh, with willingness to engage, with sensitivity to individuality, and so on. And so the aim of an aesthetic discourse, I want to say, is this state of object and other-focused mutual appreciation. We might converge to some extent on which objects are good at grounding this state, i.e. which ones have aesthetic value. I mean, that's my theory of aesthetic value, in in short. Um, I don't know if we could talk about that. But I want to say that... uh, I want to kind of functionally define aesthetic value in terms of things that are good for aesthetic discourse in the sense mm-hmm. for creating this state of mutual appreciation. Um, and so that's my communitarian theory of aesthetic value, but we can talk about it. Um, because um, yeah. But anyway, such convergence does not require agreement in response. And that's it. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you.